Hi, I'm Gracie Sarkeesian, the Executive Director at the NYU Wasserman Center, and this is All in a Day's Work, the podcast we've created for you. All in a Day's Work will bring you episodes featuring members of the NYU community doing interesting work and navigating the professional world. We are excited to share their stories with you. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to All in a Day's Work, the NYU Career Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Miriam Miller, and we're sitting down today with NYU alum and special guest, Rich Orbe Austin. Rich, thank you so much for being here with us today. My pleasure, Miriam. Thank you for having me. Can you give our listeners an overview of how you began your journey at NYU and your progress to what it is that you're doing today? So I majored in psychology with the initial thought that I would be a psychiatrist. Uh, Clearly, I chose a different path. I was fortunate enough during my junior year to participate in an internship where I was paired with a psychologist at Columbia University. And so upon graduating from NYU, I went into research at the New York Psychiatric Institute, which is connected to Columbia Presbyterian. And then I worked at an alternative high school for a couple of years and then made the decision to pursue my doctorate at Fordham University's Graduate School of Education. And then subsequently, after I finished my doctorate, I really spent time working in higher education, primarily in counseling centers and career development centers. And then I was able to finally open my practice. And now I currently have a practice with my wife where we focus on career and executive coaching, as well as consulting in the areas of diversity, equity, inclusion, and leadership development. So psychology is one of the most popular majors here at NYU. So can you talk a little bit about why you felt like psychology was the right choice for you? And if you had always felt interested in psychology specifically, or if you had ever considered doing something else? I think it's a great question, Merriman. And I always tell the story, as I talked about, I was always interested in helping people. And I tend to feel that I'm a good listener. And so I had an opportunity when I was in eighth grade to start a column in our school newspaper called Ask Dr. Rich. And at that time, it was a, uh, an advice column that my peers would write about, you know, usually relationships or struggles with their parents. And And at that time, that's what I thought it would be like to be a psychologist, to really be able to help people, give them guidance, give them direction. You know, as I transitioned into high school and to college, I had a much more expansive understanding of what it might be. But I was always, since that time period, very much focused on psychology. That's wonderful. And I I think it's always so interesting when people do reflect back on themselves as younger people And just thinking about some of the things that they've done that may have given some sort of indication of what they would end up doing. I think the Ask Dr. Rich column is just a lovely, lovely example of that. Were there times during both your undergraduate years, during graduate school, or or even still now, when you feel like other people weighed in on this question of what it is that you should be doing and what path you should go down? If so, how do you feel like you have balanced feedback from other people with your own ideas? So one of the things that I talk a great deal about when we talk about career planning and career development is to recognize that we always have a particular audience in mind when we're thinking about our decision making. And for me, first and foremost, it was my parents. It was very clear from my vantage point that 
my parents wanted both their children to pursue medical school. And it was a very difficult discussion to say, I'm going in another direction, that you will have another doctor in the family, but it will not be a medical doctor per se. When you're thinking about your decision making, think about who your audience is and, and how to have some difficult conversations and how to have some alternative plans. Because I think whether it's your parents, whether it's your partner, whether it's your friends, people will care about you and they just want to make sure that you are secure and that you will be able to be financially viable. And so I think that was what I recognized with my parents so that when I had the conversation, I had an alternative path that seemed to still suit their needs. I think it's great that you are able to also frame that conversation with them around trying to understand what their motivation was for wanting to have you be a doctor and understanding that it did come from a really good, well-intentioned place and being able to, to think about how to then have a conversation about the fact that it wasn't going to be exactly what they might have imagined, but that you would still be doing something very meaningful and worthwhile with your time that they could be proud of. As we know, you, you did ultimately decide to pursue the PhD instead of an MD. So how was it for you then going into a PhD program and completing that, but then not going on the faculty job search track? So one of the critiques that I tend to have about graduate training, especially in psychology, is that there aren't that many particular paths that are laid out outside of academia for individuals who may not be interested in pursuing that. And one of the things that I remember distinctly when I started in my program is that out of all the faculty members that were currently on staff, only one actually had a small practice, and she subsequently left the program when talking to my advisor, talking to other faculty members about my plans. They were supportive, but you could tell that they were like, well, what about you know pursuing some faculty opportunities as well? And, and that was not necessarily something that I had any interest in. I, I did adjunct teaching. I did some research work. So I, I knew what that life would be. And it wasn't necessarily what fit some of the ways that I wanted to make impact in the world at large. Well, and I know you said that one of the things that was really important to you and that really drew you to psychology was wanting to help other people. So can you talk a little bit about why you decided to start your own practice and, and, and just what it was like to get that off the ground to begin with? Sure. So when we thought about the idea, we thought about it in the context of having our own practice, but not necessarily fully understanding that we were launching our own business. The business piece of it certainly was not something that we had a great deal of training in understanding all the specific variables. The business needs constant attention, whether it's being able to have a marketing plan, whether it's really being able to understand your billing cycles, things that for the most part, unfortunately, a good deal of clinicians may be uncomfortable doing. You and your wife, neither one of you really had much of a business background. And so I think in, in one sense, that must have been very nice to feel like you had a partner you're going through that together with. And on the other hand, I could imagine that that might also feel additionally daunting because you know, you're both starting this together. And so, you know, it means that both of you are transitioning away from the relative security of other kinds of traditional roles that you had had towards creating something on your own. So did you feel nervous at all? 
Sure. So we oftentimes talk about, we being my wife and I, talk about the fact that I was very excited about starting a private practice. She was not. But the story that we tell and the story that we experienced actually started from a situation with my wife working in higher ed and making the decision, unfortunately, due to a toxic boss to transition out of a full-time role. And I remember she came to me and said, well, I know that this is something that you're passionate about, so I want to support you. And so the plan was that she would be in the practice and then work part-time in higher ed, that I was for some time still going to continue to work full-time in higher ed while also working part-time in the practice. And so there was this tiered approach of saying, okay, let's launch but still have some level of financial cushion. And I think it was something that was critical in allowing us to make better decisions in terms of the types of clients we wanted to see in types of the ways that we launched and built the business. Eventually, my wife transitioned out of her part-time role, and then I was able to finally transition into full-time practice, which was the most exciting, but also one of the scariest things, because when we made that decision, we had two young children at the time. When I look back on it, I laugh and say, well, that was pretty crazy to do when you had, you know, two children under five. But it was one of the best decisions that we've ever made. And we haven't looked back since. We'll be right back to our episode after this quick tip from Haley Garofalo. When considering all the different ways you can build the skills you need to navigate your future and set yourself up for success, we think about all the experiences you can get outside the classroom. Often referred to as experiential learning, these opportunities allow you to develop knowledge, skills, and values from direct experiences outside your traditional academic setting. These opportunities allow you to apply what you're learning in the classroom to the real world and prepare you for the future that lies ahead. When we think of experiential learning, we often first think of jobs and internships. While these are extremely valuable in gaining skills, insights, and awareness around your future goals, there are many different types of opportunities that allow you to get some hands-on experience, including service learning, research, studying abroad, getting involved on campus, and other types of creative and professional work experiences. Volunteering is another great way to build your resume and give back to your local community at the same time. Throughout New York City, you can volunteer with local organizations that focus on social issues from education to the environment, criminal justice, and beyond. Volunteer and community-based work will help you gain a deeper understanding of yourself as well as the communities that surround you. Skills such as communication, networking, collaboration, professionalism, and many more can all be developed from these types of opportunities. And ultimately, experiential learning helps bring that coursework to life, introduces you to new ways of understanding, and helps equip you with much of what you will need to find your best path forward. And now, back to the episode. Because you and your wife both run this business together and you have for a number of years now, I want to ask a little bit about this experience of working so closely with a partner. Because in the last year with COVID happening, 
a lot of us have been sort of thrust into the situation where people are working from home or where they're working partially remotely. And, and many people who had never worked in close proximity to a partner or a spouse before are suddenly doing exactly that. So as someone who has successfully managed to do this for years, do you have any advice for our listeners and side note for me personally about how to maintain a healthy environment when living and working with a significant other basically all the time? Sure. So the first thing I will say is communication, communication, communication. Uh, We had the good fortune of starting our relationship at work. So we were friends and and worked in a higher ed. So oftentimes one of the things that I see, especially with working couples who now, as you said, in COVID are working in closer proximity, is the expectation that your partner will have a similar work style to you. And so when I talk about communication, it's really being able to have some conversations about what you may need, what your partner may need, I think is most critical in this moment. And then being able to find some separation between work and your personal life, because it can all now blur and it can feel that you're always working, which can further strain the relationship. So making sure that you're having opportunities to connect outside of the understanding of work or other family responsibilities is the other piece that I would emphasize. I know that the two of you also homeschool your children together on top of working together. And childcare has become a totally different beast for a lot of people who have children at home, especially young children, but also older children whose school they're trying to monitor now while they work full time. Can you talk a little bit about how you and your wife balance your schedules with work to make that homeschooling possible? So part of what we were very clear about doing is setting our schedules so that we both work, in essence, two and a half days a week and that the other time is spent solely focused on for the most part, homeschooling our children. So I know and recognize that a a good deal of work couples may not have that flexibility to have it so that they only work two and a half days. So one of the things, though, that I talk about is just being able to recognize how to divide up the homeschooling responsibilities in a way that doesn't cause a burden on one spouse versus another or one partner versus another. And it may not always be totally equal, but we want it to be as equitable as possible. That's, I think, one of the things that I encourage, you know, a good deal of my clients who are in this situation to be very intentional about how they can manage a schedule with both their actual employers, but also with their partners that allows them to feel like they're putting in the time they need to put in for their jobs, but they're also being able to engage with their children around their academic needs. I want to talk also a little bit about the fact that you and your wife wrote a book together about imposter syndrome called Own Your Greatness. So I'd love to hear from you what the process was like for getting that book deal and then actually the process of writing it, especially with everything else kind of going on in in life and work and with child rearing and everything else, how are you able to write that book together? Sure. So I talk about how important social media and visibility is. So I will say, quite frankly, that I was not always the biggest fan of social media 
But in developing our social media channels and increasing our visibility, we came on the radar of a small publishing agency called Ulysses Press. And they reached out to us and said, you know, we see some of the work that you're doing. We're very much interested in doing a book on imposter syndrome. We get so many solicitations. We thought it was a scam. We, we never heard of anyone getting a book deal that way. But then we started to do some research and, and talk to some of our colleagues in the publishing industry who confirmed that, one, it was, in fact, a actual press. And two, it was a well-regarded small press. And they really were phenomenal in being able to support us in developing this book. And so I, I want to ask a little bit more about the content of the book and specifically how it relates to the work with your practice. So is there specific advice that you have for students or, or alumni who might be listening who are currently struggling with imposter syndrome and are working to try to overcome it? Sure. So, so when we talk about imposter syndrome, it is not a clinical diagnosis. It's more of a phenomenon. Uh, and for those who are struggling with imposter syndrome, one of the first things to do is to understand the origins of your imposter syndrome. Uh, oftentimes what we see is that individuals who were identified early on as either the extremely bright one and then feeling pressure to maintain that status or someone who, by contrast, was identified as a very hard worker, but not necessarily the intelligent one in the family. And so they've taken on the understanding that the only reason that they can be successful is not through intelligence, but through just overwork. Uh, and then finally, being able to see that there's a different group who are individuals who were neglected to some extent in their childhood experience and were not able to have role models or people to tell them what their skills and accomplishments were. So understanding the, the origin story helps you to, to recognize, again, not in a way to blame others, but to really support yourself in understanding where it comes from. And then as you go through the model, we talk about knowing your triggers, so new roles, new projects, meeting new people. Then we talk about changing your narrative. So most people with imposter syndrome have a narrative that is negative and not accurate, that they feel that the only reason they're successful is because they were lucky or they had a, a relationship with someone who liked them enough to give them an opportunity. And so we tell them to change their narrative or support them in changing their narrative to an accurate, positive one. So it's really first and foremost acknowledging that you are struggling with imposter syndrome and then seeking the assistance and support of individuals who clearly understand what it is to help you to shift your narrative about yourself. So I would love to just sort of wrap up by asking a little bit about what's next for you at this point. So we're excited to now be able to launch a course related to imposter syndrome that supports the book. Uh, and we're thinking now about what may be the next book related to this area. And one of the things that we've been talking a great deal about as of late is tackling now work cultures that sustain imposter syndrome. Work cultures, for instance, that reward overwork or demand perfection. And so these are some of the things that we want to be able to now pursue next in supporting people to overcome their imposter syndrome and to indeed own their greatness. I'm looking forward to hearing more about how that all comes together and develops. So with that, I want to thank you so much for talking to us a little bit about your path 
and um, it's it's been really enjoyable. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. It was a pleasure to spend some time with you today, Miriam. If you want to learn more about the services that are offered at the Wasserman Center, you can log onto our career portal, Handshake, through your NYU homepage. Today's episode was hosted by Miriam Miller with episode guest Rich Orbe Austin. We're produced by Miriam Miller and Lily Smith, edited by Lily Smith, and created with support from Nia Beresford, Daniel Crystal, Dana Rosa, Haley Garofalo, Diana Mendez, Joseph Mercadante, Carrie Pannoni, and Sarah Rosenthal. That's all in a day's work. Thanks for listening.